This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Nell Coulter. I'm a writer. I've written Student and That Year, both available on Amazon. And when I'm not blogging about reality TV, I am listening to Bruce. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lessing Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and joining me fresh from a weekend at the shore is my new friend, David. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, David and I have already talked 20 minutes before I even hit record, um, so I don't think we're going to have any problem about him being shy. Uh, I'm not tight-lipped, I promise. Yeah. Uh, I think you, you already know that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I live in New York. I grew up in Jersey, uh, graduated high school in 1986, and I have to say that along with most of my friends, I've been a pretty rabid Springsteen fan for as long as I can remember. And just about everybody I grew up with and all my friends in high school, my little clique, we were all nuts about Springsteen. And I think that was sort of galvanized around 84 when Born in the USA came out. And I remember we used to go to the Sweet Sixteens and we would demand that the DJ play Thunder Road, which really isn't a dance song. And we would stand around in a circle singing it to each other. So uh, that was pretty great. I'm a writer. Uh, I write for a music site called Stereo Embers Magazine. Really? And I'm also a fiction writer and a poet, if I may say so. I write a comic strip called Pretty Sure, which is really hard to find, but I hope to rectify that someday. <laughs> and I also write, I'm going to do my best, and I also write nonfiction. I have one son, Leo, who's going to turn eight in August. And I am making a living in New York as a copywriter, but most of the work I do uh, to make a living is pretty boring, so I'm going to spare you and anybody listening to the podcast a description of that writing. It's a lot of writing, and it's pretty miserable. And uh, I also write a sort of intermittent column for a magazine here in New York called West 42nd Street, which is published in Hell's Kitchen. And uh, we do themed issues, and so I write little kind of memoir pieces. And, for example, in August, for the family's issue, I wrote something about what I learned in my year being a New York parent. So that's it. I, I surf not very well. Um, I love cycling, movies, and I'm a music fanatic, just out of my mind for music. And one of the best things about, I was living abroad for a long time in Cyprus, is where I'm from, she's Greek Cypriot, and it's where my son was born. And we moved back here. And I have to say that one of the best things about moving back here is that I started listening to vinyl again. And in fact, last weekend, my son and I were at a uh, charity shop, and we found a bunch of records. We found records at another outdoor sale somewhere. Actually, 
I've, and they're awesome records, my son wants me to say, and we've looped back around and actually have a little uh, turntable now, and I can sit and listen to records, which is just, it's really nice, because that's pretty much how I spent my 80s. Hold on, you have to be quiet. You're not on the podcast. So, but, but Dad, what, that's, you're getting it wrong. Yeah, but, but Dad, I'm getting it wrong. Exactly. You're not on the podcast. It's just about me. Um, so, I'm feedback. You're not giving feedback. So that's the story. So um, it's, now you uh, mentioned you're a writer. Uh, what kind of books? Well, I am actually working on a book about music called Twenty Thousand Things I Love. And that was inspired by uh, my first iPod, which I think people don't even remember them anymore because everybody's got Spotify or Pandora or something. But back in 2005 or six, somebody gave me my first iPod and it held 20,000 songs. And I remember thinking, this is like having my entire record collection in the palm of my hand, pretty much in a device that's the size of a cassette and a case. And so, um, I started thinking a while later about what it's like to be my age, which is, if I'm, I guess it's okay to admit that. And I'm thinking that people of my age and my generation, we're the last group of people that can say we went all the way through every single media format. You know, for example, I remember hearing all the hits on AM radio when I was a little kid in my mom's car. And buying records and then switching to cassettes, back to records, then to CDs. And now I have this external hard drive with almost 800, 900 gigabytes of music on it. I don't think I'll ever listen to every song on it. And then to top it off, if I go to the gym, I have, you know, an 80s workout mixer, a 90s workout mixer or something on my phone. So I don't think that, let's say, people really have this sense of going through all these different formats. You know, in fact, I remember, uh, God, this has been in the 90s, I was working um, in an office. I was working for my dad, actually, and we had an intern, and I think he'd never heard an entire album. The kids just download songs. So this was sort of the impetus for the book, was to sort of, I wanted to write my autobiography, and that sounds very high-handed, but I wanted to write, like, the story of my life as a music lover, as a music fanatic, and sort of frame it with these changes in format and how I went through like the progressive rock era on FM. I was 12 when MTV started, which was a complete revolution. I was still, you know, I was still uh, young enough to be incredibly excited about Nirvana. And I saw them before Kurt Cobain killed himself. I saw them in San Francisco when they were touring for, uh, they did a tour for, um, to benefit the rape victims of the war in Bosnia. And it was them, the disposable heroes of hypocrisy, L7, and the Breeders. And I remember we were on the floor of the Cow Palace, which is where the San Jose Sharks played before they built them a stadium. And it was like a mosh pit of thousands of people. It was just an incredible experience. So, again, the idea behind the book is that I feel really lucky to be the age I am. I've gotten to see Springsteen. You know, I was into Springsteen before Born in the USA came out. And it was amazing to, you know to be driving around in a car and for hearing Dancing in the Dark for the first time. Um, I'm also a massive replacement fan, and I am thrilled that I got to see them a couple of times and that I was, you know, a teenager and a young man while they were still making records and giving interviews. And I met Paul Westerberg and he signed an album for me at a Virgin Megastore in San Francisco. So 
I've had a really incredible experience as a music lover, and so I want to put that together in a book, sort of, and also to leave a map for my son, you know, to say this is what, you know, this is what I listened to, and this is how I came about it, and this is what my experience was. And uh, then it's going to be also a compilation of my best music writing. So that's, okay. that sorry, that was a pretty long-winded explanation of no, a book. No, no, that's very cool. So, um, so. That's very nice. Uh, the... Um, does um now what's your son's name? Leo. Leo. All right. So, yeah. what's Leo's favorite Bruce Springsteen song? Leo's favorite Bruce Springsteen song is really funny. It's uh, it's um, just like firewood. I don't know if I have the title right from High Hopes, um, because a friend of mine sent it to me while we were still in Cyprus, and I couldn't get the hook out of my head. And I remember I'd um, be pushing him on a swing in a playground near our house, and I'd just be singing just the just the beginning of the chorus over and over again, just like firewood, I'm burning. And he kept saying, you know, he calls me Babaki, which is like little dad or little duck. It's like, it's like Papa, but little Papa. Because everything in Greek is, you put an Aki at the end. It's like Ito in Spanish. He's like, Aki, what is that song? So I played him a lot of Springsteen. He likes firewood. And I'm trying to think what else, you know, he, he just picks things up. He's really into classical now. Um, I actually wanted to take him. I saw Bruce Springsteen in Portugal when he was two. We actually went all the way from Cyprus to Portugal to see Springsteen at Rock and Rio. I had a friend in Cyprus who said, hey, let's go see Springsteen. And I said, how are we going to afford this? There's no way we can do this. Well, it turned out I have a really old friend from Italy who lives about two hours from Lisbon. And I was able to get the tickets online. And then we told him we were coming to stay with him. And I said, I'm going to buy you a ticket. And he said, I accept. And so we went to Rock and Rio. But I wanted to take Leo with me. He was way too young, and I, I don't think he could have taken it. But at some point, I got to take him because I have other friends who take their kids to Springsteen, and I think it. You know, of all the shows I could take him to, I think that's one I don't want him to miss. I think that's gonna yeah. change his life. So, um, but he loves uh, Firewood, and I don't. I'm trying to think what other Springsteen songs. You know, we cycle through so much music, and now it's really classical because we leave the classical station on all the time. He loves Asbury Park, though. So, and I was explaining to him, I was explaining to him, oh, and he loves the Beatles, he wants me to say. Okay. And I, he's here. There's no, getting, there's no getting rid of him. So we're going to have to accept that he's part of this. Um, That's fine. I'll be whispering. Yeah, he actually, but he, yeah, he says he'll be whispering. He'll be feeding me my lines. Okay. You know, they moved, um, when they remodeled the Asbury Park um, boardwalk, they moved Madame Marie. She used to be down at the southern end of the boardwalk by the casino. Now she's more up toward the Coliseum. So I just explained to Tell me? The convention center. Now it's by the convention center. It used to be by the casino. And so I pointed out to him and said, hey, that's in a Springsteen song. And I gave him the lyrics. So I think he'll sort of absorb these things over time because my goal with him is just to make sure that he has so much music around him that it, it's just gonna, he's just going to absorb it. You know? Yeah. So, now so, you mentioned think, that you... Um, you traveled a while, and you mentioned that he called you by a Greek name. Uh, was Leo uh, born overseas? Leo was born in Cyprus. Yeah, he was born in Cyprus. He's an American citizen, but he'll never be president. That's unfortunate. But by the time he's old enough, the way things are going, there might not be in America. So we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, we're going to have to wait. Radiation's going to take over. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I have to say that um, – I have to say that um, – you know, living abroad for a long time, I was really homesick. And uh, two things that were really important to me while I was away in terms of things that sort of assuaged that homesickness 
where Springsteen and Billy Joel. Yeah. And now I have to I have to say also that I feel and I, I feel that um I'm lucky to be from New Jersey. I feel really fortunate to be from New Jersey. Not that Springsteen how do I phrase this? There's something about being here, you know, and it's like you know Yeah, it's you know, just being not not just the East Coast but having like grown up, you know, Spending summers on the shore, going to Asbury Park. So I mean, we when I was a kid, when I was a kid, we used to go to Asbury Park to try to get you know buy beer at these kind of like run down liquor stores because there was nothing else in Asbury Park. It really came back over the past ten or fifteen years. Yeah. And so, but to be in these places, like you know, I go for bike rides, and uh, with my dad, let's say on a Saturday or Sunday morning, and you know, we're crossing Kingsley. Like to to be in that geography. It's so incredible to me. I mean, listen, who knows? Maybe, maybe it's sort of like for people who love the talking heads of the Velvet Underground who remember, like, being in the East Village and, or the Ramones and seeing them at CBGBs, you know. It's holy ground, you know, or people that could say they saw um, the replacements at 7th Avenue or, um, you know, people who might have seen, like, Jackson Brown or the Eagles or other bands at the, at the um, I'm trying to think, what was the big club in L.A.? Was it the Troubadour? Yeah, I think, I think so. like Elton John. Yeah. yeah, Elton John had his big break there. Or like he exit the whiskey. That's the, yeah. You know, I mean, something like that. You say, the Stone Ponies. Yeah, the Stone Ponies. I never saw Springsteen the Stone Ponies. Like that was sort of, that's sort of like, you get to walk on that holy ground and it's really amazing to just sort of breathe that in. You know, like to think, you know, to think when Springsteen's telling the story, I have the, um, one of the first bootlegs I ever bought was the, the vinyl copy of the radio broadcast he did of the December 78 shows at Winterland in San, in San Francisco. And that's, I think, where, I think that might be where the radio edit of Santa Claus is Coming to Town comes from. I'm not sure. I, I could be very wrong, but it's a, it's, a, it's a pound-for-pound version. And when he says, you know, it's all cold down on the beach, the yeah. wind's whipping down the boardwalk, and I think, I've been on that boardwalk. I've been on that boardwalk. So, you know, that's, that's, the, thing that, that's the thing that I really love, to have... To sort of have this in my, I don't know, to feel like I have him at some sort of cellular level. And I think that most people in New Jersey who love him would say the same thing, that they love that being from New Jersey kind of, it sort of, it enhances that experience of being a Springsteen fan. You know, I mean, who knows, maybe people who love John Mellencamp from Indiana, like, I know exactly what he's talking about, but I just have this, like, like, you go down there and you can just inhale it, if you know what I mean. Yes. And I love that he sur- I love that he surfs. Like, I love that he serves and that he loves cars and that I've been through all the towns he's been through. You know, I just, I feel like I'm, it's just this thing that, that I've just had around me for so long, you know, so. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I'm a firm believer that the amount of times you've seen Bruce is not a fair barometer of your fandom. But for the record, uh, how many times have you seen him? Four. Let me think. Was it four times? Hold on a second. And maybe, was it only three? I'm trying to think. What's really funny, oh, I have a bunch of stories about it. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Because, you know, it's like deadhead mass. You know, it's like, how many times have you seen the dead? Oh, I saw them 500 times. And, you know, yeah. then they do this thing where they say, they say, how many times did you see them before Jerry died? And it's sort of like, it's kind of like Ernie Stripes or something. Yes. Um, I was, I spent seven years as a grad student. So, I still can't believe I had enough money to see Nirvana or the Smashing Pumpkins. You know, I think I look back on all the, 
the amazing concerts I saw when I was in grad school. And I think half of those were just gifts or happy accidents. Because, you know, I was getting an MFA in creative writing at a state, you know, who can afford to go to a show? And now it's even worse. I mean, I hear that, like, nosebleed seats for Billy Joel at the Garden are, like, 250 bucks a piece. I remember going to see the Kinks in New York on the pier for $18 in a service charge. I mean, the yeah. Kinks, you know? So, um, but, okay, so I definitely saw, I, but all the shows I saw were big shows. Like, well, I mean, there's no, not a big three-feet show, but I saw the 85 shows at Giant Stadium, which were the first shows I think he ever played at Giant Stadium. And we were sitting to the right of the stage, and I think he played, that was when he was still with Julian Phillips, and I think he either closed, or one of the last songs he did was Can't Help Falling in Love With You, which he was playing to her on the, at those shows. I think in 92, I saw one of the 10 shows he did at Burn Arena, which is now Izod Arena or something, but that was the first, I think that was the greatest number of arena shows he did in a row. Like that was the, I mean, he's done it so many times since, but I think that was the first time he sold out all 10 shows. And then I saw the show in Lisbon in 2012, and it was part of Rock in Rio. Rock in Rio is that huge, huge, um, it's a huge outdoor festival in Rio, and there's plenty of stories about it. For example, um, James Taylor played it, I think, in 84, and there's a song on his 85, and that's in Rio. He had such a fantastic time at the festival. He wrote a song about it. There's also a story that Queen played Rock in Rio, and they played I Want to Break Free, and Freddie Mercury came out in drag, and the audience was, was upset. I think they were booing and shouting at him because it turns out in Brazil, it's a political anthem, and they didn't know that. So Rock in Rio is kind of like this legendary festival. It's been going on for years. The last Rush live album... I think was recorded at Rock and Rio. Like they love to play Rock and Rio. So Rock and Rio tried to franchise and now they do shows in Lisbon too. It's this giant park in like this not terrific area of Lisbon. And the, it's amazing because it's a natural theater. They put the stage, it's sort of like a bowl, like it's these grassy hills. And then the bottom, there's sort of like a, a flat in a floor space. And then they put the stage right there. So you can sit up on the hill without a chair and you're like, you're at the concert. So it was a great show because um, James played. Springsteen played with James. This is back in 2012. played with James and with the Kaiser Chiefs. And then there was a local band from Lisbon that were sort of like a cross between uh, the Ramones and Social Distortion. And they were fantastic. And we never heard of them before. And then the next night, I think we went for dinner. And almost every single piece of memorabilia at the Hard Rock Cafe in Lisbon was for this band. It was really funny. But Springsteen put on a phenomenal show. We were right down on the floor. And that was when he was doing, um, I saw her standing there for the encore. And uh, that was a great show. And he played a lot of the 80s songs, a lot of Born in the USA stuff. And I read an interview with him later on. And he said that people in Europe just love those singles. And so he plays them a lot. But I have to tell you that Every time I've seen a show in Europe, and I don't even mean just Springsteen, I also saw David Byrne, also in Lisbon, but 20 years earlier. Um, they are such incredible fans of music. I mean, when we were, even before, they went crazy for Springsteen, like insane, like just wild. It was so fantastic. But even when James came out, and James is, you know, they had maybe one or two 
pretty sizable hits in the U.S., and it was a long time ago, it was back in the 90s. Sure. The people in that crowd, and it was like a crowd, it was packed. It wasn't like people just waited and showed up for Springsteen. Like, they were there from the get-go. Those people in Portugal at that show, they knew every word of every song James played. They knew every word the Kaiser Chiefs played. I mean, it was it was amazing. And then, of course, when Springsteen came out, it was just transcendent, you know? So... Um, I was really lucky with that show, but I also have to say in terms of the funny thing is that I had bootlegs before I actually saw Springsteen live because when I was a kid, there were still a lot of um, independent record stores in New York and we used to go into the city. There were these uh, stores, there's one called Venus Records, there's one called It's Only Rock and Roll and the logo was uh, King Kong on the side of the State Building and they just had piles of, of uh, bootlegs. Now, those things are impossibly easy to come by. I mean, you can find, a friend of mine just sent me bootlegs of uh, a Bash and Pop show. That's Tommy Stinson from The Replacements playing live in Sioux City, Iowa. I have a bootleg of the Beat Farmers playing a live show in 1984, Peter Murphy. I mean, but back then, these things were like little treasures. And we would go in the city, and you'd save up your money, and you'd have, you know, just enough money to get in on the train and back. And then you'd get to buy like one or two bootlegs. So I remember buying the Winterland concert. I bought um, a YouTube bootleg from the October tour. And then after um, the, the tour for Born USA kicked off, I found a box set. It was five vinyl albums. I still have it in my parents' basement called Born in Cincinnati. And it was just somebody with the tape recorder recorded the show in Cincinnati and put it on vinyl because that's what people did back then. So I heard a lot of live Springsteen. And then, of course, when Live 7585 came out, uh, that was amazing. I wish that record had had a lot more stuff before Born to Run. But, again, the, the Born in the USA tour was so massive, he had to make that the meat of it. you know. But he also made up for it when he put out the um, – sorry, I'm, I know I'm going all over the place. I hope that's okay. No, no, you're um, fine. Yeah, I mean... Okay, great. When, I, I know that... Um, go ahead. Yeah, like, um, and I agree with you, when he got, you know, he kind of made up for it with tracks, you know, that absolutely so much different things you could see. Yeah. Yeah, I love tracks so much. The thing I love the most of all, first of all, every one of those things is just a treasure trove. Tracks was amazing, and the promise is mind-blowing, just mind-blowing with that box. Somebody sent it to me in Cyprus yeah. as a gift, and am I allowed to swear? Um, um, I can always beep you, so. Okay, I got it, and I just thought, holy shit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But the, the one that really blew my mind was, and also this is the thing about music in general, but Springsteen is that once you have friends who love Springsteen, you're, like, when I was working, not that I'm not working, but, you know, you go through periods, but I had a pretty good job when the Born, in the Born to Run box set came out, and I actually went to the Tower Records on the Upper West Side in New York, I was living there at the time, it was before I moved to Cyprus, and I bought four copies of it. I bought, it, I bought four of them, and I shipped one to, three, to each of my three best friends who were also Springsteen fanatics. I, I can't remember ever doing that with anything or, you know, any other artist. But, um, you know, they were thrilled, of course. But the thing is, I remember watching that live Hammersmith Odeon show, and it just blew my mind. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I and hearing it, it's like somebody set off a bomb in my mind. Thank you, Leo. And, um, you know, Leo, hearing it, 
That's a really good point. Good job, Leo. Keep telling him the good stuff. Yeah, Jesse said that's a really good point. It's like sitting up a bottom and it was. And even when you hear when you hear the concert, you keep thinking that the headset's a microphone. <laughs> and even when you hear the Hammersmith audience show without the video, just the audio, it's unbelievable. Because I think most people love I think most Springsteen fans really love those first two records. And you just don't hear very much from them. I think I remember when I saw him in 85 at Giant Stadium, he played Rosalita. But just so I can say, I never heard a black person can't sing. Springsteen's white, honey. Interesting. Thank you very much. Look out for my son, who's going to probably vote for Trump in 2020. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's crazy. He's crazy. No, it's for you. So he played Rosalita that show. But, you know... I don't really get much of the earlier records. I know that he did a couple tours where, or a lot of shows where he played the first album all the way through, and I know he played Wild the Innocent all the way through, but like, I think Wild the Innocent is a perfect record. I'd love to hear more of those songs live. And I think some of the songs on um, on uh, Green's Masbury Park are a little bit too slow. Like, to be honest, I don't think I need to hear The Angel or Mary Queen of Arkansas live. I mean, I, I'll live if I don't, to be honest. Right. But boy, would I love to hear for you, or would I love to hear It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. I mean, those are just stunners. Yeah. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing, exactly. I think that, you know, I and I I would say that a lot of what he was doing on that first record was he would, he would never do it again. And I think in some ways it's a little bit heartbreaking because I think about Born to Run, and you think, don't you wish there were 10 versions of Born to Run that, like, for the next five years, every record was another Born to Run? And then I think, you know what? Every time he does something, that's kind of the last time he does it. Because if you think about the Wild, the Innocent, the Street Shuffle, it's almost a Van Morrison record. It's yes. a record Van Morrison would have made if he, you know, grew up in Freehold and hung out in the city and on the Lane City boardwalk. And Greetings from Raspberry Park is a Dylan record. It's just... You need Bob Dylan. Yes, I need Bob Dylan. But it's it's almost like... It's it's the kind of record that Dylan stopped making almost, you know, like at least five or six wow. years before, yes, Bob, before Springsteen made it. And then you're born to run. It's just this culmination of, like, all of rock history up until that point. And it's just so, I mean, it leaves you, I, what, I, I, the only word I can think of what the British would use, which doesn't really translate, you're gobsmacked. Like every song on that record, you just you're stunned. You're you, smacked by God. You're smacked by God. Now God is your mouth. It's a God smack. Like, yes. For example, you think you hear Thunder Road and you think, how? How is this even possible? How is it possible? And then you get the ten thousand trees out and you think, how is this even possible? And then you get the backstreets and you're like, how is this even possible? And every single song, and that's just side one. And then yeah. you flip it over and you've got Born to Run. I mean, it's just incredible. I just got treated. And then you get to, and then you get to darkness, and you think, hey, where are the horns? Where are the where are the harmonies? You know, where's this sort of epic, that kind of like epic girl group, Phil Spector kind of grandeur? And then you get sucked in. It's a completely different thing, and it's incredible. I mean, he made a hard rock album. He made almost a punk record. Yeah. You know, and- without making, without without. Without making any, what would be the way to put it? Without, without making any con- concessions, you know, like he didn't, yeah. he didn't come out and, and you know, he didn't put a safety pin through his cheek. He didn't, you know, he took all that energy and he, he, did, he was able to do this. He, he's always been able to do this incredible thing 
that very few artists can do where, which is he can take what he hears and whatever his, that divine inspiration is and sort of push it through the sieve of himself and come up with something absolutely unique and usually perfect or almost perfect. And then every time he does it, he does it again and again. And then you get away from darkness and you think, that was unbelievable. And then he turns around and delivers the river. Yeah. And you just, it's unbelievable. And then he turns around and gives you Nebraska. And I just, and then you get poured in the USA. And then after that, and then you think, okay, what's he going to do next? And then you have Tunnel of Love. And I, I bought Tunnel of Love. I mean, I, have, I still have my vinyl copy from my, from my, I think my end of my freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. Boy, did I play that record to death. And I remember um, there was some interview with Elvis Costello where he said, oh, I think that's one of the best records of the 80s. It's like, easily, easily. And I think that, I mean, I really don't think, I don't think he's ever made a bad record. I'm not a huge fan of um, working on a dream, but I would say even a third of it is, is, is unhittable. And, yes, stunning. And I also think that I feel people don't give um, human touch and lucky town a fair shake. And I think people, I think that's also an issue of, it's kind of like when people were down in their replacements after they fired bombs things, and it was like, you can't be their replacements anymore. I don't think that people had this sense that, how can it be Bruce Springsteen with like, you know, Jeff Porcaro or Steve Lukather or Susie Tyrell? But right. it's like, there are great songs on those records. I played those records to death. I remember I bought the CDs and made a tape with both albums on one 90-minute tape. And I just remember driving around that summer. I was still living in New Jersey, just playing it over and over and over again. Those were great songs. And I think he had, um, I think it was either Sam or Dave, does backing vocals on, on one of those albums, on a couple of songs, which is on uh, just another roll of the dice. Incredible. Incredible. Absolutely. You know? uh, so, and I even go ahead. No, I'm gonna. The last thing I was gonna say is that, and I even went back and started hunting after the albums he did for other people. For example, if you go back to the Gary U.S. Bonds records he produced in the '80s, when Gary U.S. Bonds made his comeback, he and Little Steven pretty much wrote every note of those records. Yes. You know, and then and then you go a little deeper. Like one of my favorite albums is Men Without Women, and if you go back to uh, Until the Good Is Gone. Springsteen's an uncredited backing vocal. It's fantastic. I mean, there's just so many places where he shows up, and whatever he does is just, it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so uh, you were lucky enough to uh, spend some official time with Springsteen um, earlier this year at a symposium. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, this was fantastic. Now, Kenneth Walmack is the, um, he's a dean, he's a dean at the Arts and Sciences School at Monmouth University, which is right near Long, it's in Long Branch, um, on the Jersey Shore, and uh, it's kind of biking distance from Asbury Park. I wouldn't recommend walking it, but you could if you had to. Now, he put together a symposium based around this donation that Springsteen made to Monmouth University. Springsteen donated an archive. And it's an American popular music archive. And it's some of his stuff in terms of, like, I guess his notes and some of his work product, you would call it. But he also collects, um, I think he collects some documents and some, um, I'm trying to think what the right word would be. Not necessarily artifacts, but he's got a collection, and it's built around some real, you know, legendary American popular musicians. There's some, uh, he's got Sinatra, I think Woody Guthrie, maybe Pete Seeger, you know, a lot of the stuff he loves. 
And I think he's got maybe lyrics, instruments. No, no, Michael Jackson. He probably loves him too. Um, and he donated this little archive to Monmouth University. So, which unfortunately I didn't get a chance to see it, but I'm hoping to get up there and do it. But Ken Womack put together, Ken's a Beatles expert, and he's also a big Springsteen fan. And so he put together this three day symposium to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the release of Darkness. Mm-hmm. And there was a call for papers. And I'm not sure how it happened, but I wrote a very long review of working on a dream back in 2009 that kind of turned into more of a paper than a review. And I just, on a whim, I just submitted it. I took the most academic-sounding section of it and put it forward as an abstract and just tapped on the paper and said, you know, it's a free application. Let's see what happens. And I got invited to speak. And it was amazing. I was on a panel with two professors in the uh, in arts and sciences. I think they were, one of them was actually a musician. He was a bass player. And he worked, he had a band going with a bunch of students. And the other one was in the media studies department. So one of them talked about the different influences on Promised Land, both lyrically and musically. And there's actually a Chuck Berry song called Promised Land that's got like a, you know, Springsteen definitely took from it. And obviously, I think there's, you know, some Woody Guthrie, right, with this land is your land and a promised land and the biblical references um, and the idea of a promised land. And And then the other, yes, I had our speech here. And then the other um, professor who spoke was talking about what was on the radio in 1977 and 78 when Springsteen recorded and released Darkness. And it was very interesting because if you look back, it was Blondie. It was, um, I think, Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty, who used to be in Steeler's Wheel. And also one of the bigger albums in 1978 was Some Girls, which um, I think is the last great Stones record. And he pointed out how there was punk here, there was disco here, and Springsteen really just sort of, I mean, there's really no disco on Darkness, obviously, but you don't get the disco until you get the remix version of... um, Dancing in the Dark, which I used to have at some point. I hope I can find them again. I had the you know, 12-inch disposal that Arthur Baker produced of Cover Me and Dancing in the Dark, which were pretty amazing. Um, and then Arthur Baker went on to produce uh, Dylan's Empire Burlesque, which is also a pretty excellent record. I mean, I know they're kind of maligned because they're 80s, but I really like Infidels and Empire Burlesque a lot. But um, So we talked about what was on the radio and punk, and I was there to talk about the idea of behind our panel was Springsteen and other musical influences. So I sort of spoke to my paper a little bit, and my point was that Springsteen's always been listening to everything, and it works his way into his work. I remember this interview with him around the time that, I'm not sure, maybe it was Human Touch and Lucky Town. He actually said he'd been listening to Sir Mix a lot, which I thought was a little bit silly, but then you go back to every Springsteen record, the recent ones, I mean, He'll try anything, and he usually makes it work. The point of my paper, which I'm, I don't know if it really spoke so well to the, to the panel, but the point I tried to make in my paper was that I think that magic is a masterpiece. I think the rising is a masterpiece. And I thought that working on a dream sounded like the outtakes from magic. And my point was that the beauty of magic was that they were great songs that took flavor from other things he loved, like, okay, here's the Beach Boys, here's the band, right? Here's Left Bank. Right. But then when he got to working on the dream, it sort of seemed like he was trying to shoehorn his songs into these, you know, musical ideas he already had, and I thought it failed. And I also wanted to make a point in my paper, which I think I did, was that 
it seems that Springsteen tends to veer away from from the rock and roll that we all fell in love with and moving in these like folk directions. And don't get me wrong, I love Nebraska. Um, I love the Seeger sessions, you know, but the thing is that it's almost as if he's worried that that somehow history is gonna look unfavorably on a hard rock song that it won't line up with this land is your land, you know. And I think listen, I pound for pound, Thunder Road or Born to Run, it it it, it says just as much. Yes. So the point I was trying to make in the paper is that, hey, you don't have to write you don't have to give us a ghost of Tom Joe so that you're forever etched into the American songbook. Like you are the American songbook. Yeah. You know, this is in the last line. One of the last lines of my paper was I pretty much said he is rock and roll. I mean, he took everything. I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis, the Ray Charles, Orbison, the Beach Boys, the Beatles. You name it. It's all in there. You know. And if you, you know, if you do any writing, and this is, I taught creative writing for a while, which I know in some quarters it's considered a crime against humanity, but it's what it is. And you know. I will tell students, I'll say, you know what, you want to copy Fitzgerald, you want to copy Hemingway, you name a writer you want to copy, you want to copy Salinger, you go ahead and do it, because you can't, because even if you try your hardest, you're going to end up with you. Yes, it's probably going to have a lot of touches, you know, it should be, you're going to be the, you're going to be the summary of your influences, right? right? But but you are gonna, it's, you're going to push it through the sieve of yourself and you're going to end up with a completely new concoction that might have some of the flavors that you've ingested, but it, it's, you can't make something that's not you if you're earnest and you're really trying and you, and you, you mean it and you're passionate about it. And so, I, and I think that, go ahead, sorry. No, I just say I agree. Um, how was the, um, how was your paper, how do you think it went over? Well, my mom was there. There you <laughs> so, go. You know, it's really funny. My mom and my aunt and my um, my dad and my uncle came, which was really a treat. I was really, because it was just, I mean, it was great. And uh, with my mom and my aunt there, I think um, that was the highest density of hearing aids at any, um, at any lecture or uh, event there. But, um, you know, I think people like to hear what I say. I, I'm not really an academic, and I didn't, you know, I didn't have a PowerPoint or anything really prepared. I was sort of speaking off the cuff, but it was it was great to talk to people. Um, it was also it was great to talk to people about what I saw and hear their response. Some people, you know, I saw a lot of people nodding, which felt really good. It was pretty well attended. I mean, I was at 10 a.m. on a Saturday, so you know, what are you going to do? But it was really um, people there were so deep into Springsteen. There was actually a guy in the audience who is also a comic book illustrator. His name is Arlen. I, he's a friend of mine on Facebook now. And um, he has a, a Facebook group called The Silver Age of Comics. And he's very talented. He's a Springsteen fanatic. And he was also presenting. And he presented about what he considered the greatest show Springsteen ever played, which was a show at the Passaic Theater in New Jersey. I think it's the Capitol Theater in Passaic. In... 78, I think it was on on the one of the first Darkness shows or before Darkness was released. But anyway, he was talking about it's interesting. This is how deep people's knowledge went, which is why it was really great to be there. He was talking about not just 
a Lou Reed song that Springsteen does a spoken word piece on, but an outtake of it. <laughs> I said, I, I, that's it. You've, you've, I've, I've hit a wall. I mean, that's, just, that's incredible that, that people would have this kind of, I mean, you know, that's esoteric. And I mean that in the best possible way. So it was a pleasure to be around people. And, and it also had the same sort of feeling. Um, a friend of mine who I got to know over the past couple of years, he's, a, um, he's in the uh, theology department at Rutgers, Azan Yedin Israel, and he wrote, a, he wrote a book and he presented about it at the uh, symposium called The Mythologies of God and the Mythologies of Man, Biblical Imagery and References. I'm getting the self-title wrong in the work of Bruce Springsteen. And so he talked about um, some of the songs on darkness. He talked about Adam Reese Cain, of course. And, but it was great because then it sort of went into a wider discussion and I brought up, and I wasn't on the panel, I was just in the audience because I wanted to hear him speak, but I brought up something about spirituality and I said, you know, what we haven't talked about yet is what a big, um, what a big influence Van Morrison has always been on Springsteen and how there's this constant theme in Van Morrison's work about the spiritual journey, this sort of trying to find this idea of this happiness on earth or some sort of enlightened state, you know, I mean, music is sort of a spiritual pursuit. And I think Springsteen has completely absorbed that. So the symposium was great to be around all these like-minded people. It was fantastic. And we were also talking about, you know, I, it was great. I felt very smart. I forget what we were talking about, but something about Hungry Heart and the Ramones. And I was saying, well, yeah, of course, because Springsteen and the Ramones both love girl groups. You know, yeah. so it was great to, and I talked about this thing that I, I always talk about, and it's not an original thought, and I wish I knew who said it so I could footnote him or her, but the thing is that, and definitely for people my age, I remember being in high school, and the term that this gentleman or this woman used in this essay they wrote was about how music lovers balkanized themselves, because when I was in high school, I wouldn't listen to Van Halen or Journey or Ozzy Osbourne or Iron Maiden. That was for the guys that were wearing denim jackets with the same color jeans with, like, big white basketball high tops and mullets smoking cigarettes, you know. My group were the guys that were listening to, like, U2 and Elvis Costello and Bruce Springsteen and Squeeze um, and The Police, you know. So and there was all these, you know, and then you went to college and you had the goth kids that were into The Cure and Depeche Mode and, you know, Sisters of Mercy, that was like a long time ago. And I remember my brother or a friend of mine, somebody said to me, hey, you know, every, everybody listens to everything. And in fact, it's really funny because one of my good friends from college, it was and still is a massive deadhead. And she was the first person to give me a copy of Workers Playtime by Billy Bragg. So it's funny to let that sort of slip and see that you can listen to everything. And you would think, you know, at that time in the late 70s, you'd say, Springsteen's not punk. And you hear stories that, you know, Patti Smith sort of, you know, she, she wanted to cover Because the Night, but she sort of dismissed Springsteen. I don't think he had any, you know, punk cred or whatever it was. But you see all these connections that you wouldn't have seen because you were so busy walling yourself off in your own music. You yeah. know? So now I'm the proud owner of, you know, MP3s of every Van Halen album. But I never <laughs> would have admitted to it in, like, 1986. You know, that was somebody else's music. So well, you reach a point where um, you don't care about what's cool anymore, 
all you really care about is do I like it or not. And exactly. And I go ahead. Well, I was going to say to that point, and, and thank you for letting me be so long-winded. I've read some of it, and I loved it. Nick Hornby's uh, collection of very short essays called Songbook. And um, he wrote this piece about Jackson Brown. And he said, hey, when I was in college, I was listening to Clash and The Damned and, you know, The Pistols. And what did I give a crap about this, this hippie from Southern California with a pudding bowl haircut? Right? He goes, then 20 years later, I went through my first divorce, and I got it. So I think that the point is that you start to see once you say, well, you know, I'm going to let go of this sort of prejudice against this particular genre, this particular band, and I'm going to see what's here. And also when you get to be older and a more sophisticated lover of music, you start to see, like, I listen to Jackson Brown now, and I think he is a, a songwriter without peer. Yeah. You know, like the construction of these songs is just incredible, you know, and then you can go back to the Ramones and see, God, they must have been having so much fun, you know, and I think it also, you know, getting more sophisticated makes you more discerning, like, I really can't listen to much YouTube beyond maybe a couple of things off pop, but really, I could play Octone Baby to death, but I, I have not listened to um, All That You Can't Leave Behind or How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb in about 10, 15 years, because... I, I saw or I experienced the, the drop in the quality of lyrics, and I thought, this isn't the band I fell in love with. Like, I was carrying a flag for that band when I was a kid. And now it's like, I don't see, I don't see the craft there anymore. Like, I remember listening to Unforgettable Fire and thinking, these songs are poems. You know, that's what I thought about Thunder Road. This is a poem. Born to Run, the same thing. You know? And, yeah. and moving away from the poetry, if you look at Springsteen, you say, he might be one of our greatest short storytellers. Is there a better short story than The River? It does exactly what a short story is supposed to do. Exactly. And it does it, it in, in four minutes. Well, so, but I'm, I'm happy to be at the point where I am because I think that now that I've, you know, I, I grew up with so much music that I was so fervent about things. It's like, oh, I'll never listen to this. You know, I find some days I'm sitting at work and I'm listening to like this two CD journey compilation over and over again where I would have mocked that when I was in high school. It was a journey. Are you kidding? I'm listening to this year's model and uh, war, you know, and, uh, and you know, the alarms. Um, going back to sort of being more, the funny thing is I'm not listening to very much new music, but I'm actually getting more open-minded about things that I passed on when I was younger. For example, since I grew up listening to classic rock radio in New York, there's so many songs I can never hear again, like Walk This Way by Aerosmith or obviously Stairway to Heaven and definitely a lot of Eagles songs. But I started watching the History of the Eagles documentary on Netflix and they showed way back in the beginning when they were, when they started Randy Meisner from Coco. And they were incredible and the harmonies were unbelievable. And the kind of stuff that you're not gonna, it's like the first couple of albums. And when you only hear the hits, you don't realize that the wealth of, of music is there. So I guess this is what I'm, I'm trying to go back to these things that I sort of didn't get to know very well and, and see if there's all this sort of you know, kind of low-hanging fruit or, you know, available treasure that I just missed on the first pass. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
All right. Well, um, we have been talking a while. I could keep on talking to you, but um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, so I absolutely love this, by the way. So oh, well, thank you. You're, you're going to have to throw me off the phone because this is like, well, anyway, yeah, we go will ahead. have to have you on again. Um, I would love to. Let's, um, I do want to ask you the Mary question. So, okay. Um, the, uh, Jay who has been on the podcast before is a honors English teacher, as you were talking about yourself doing a little bit of that. And one of the things they cover Thunder Road as a poem and they he compares it to um, the road less traveled and they discuss it and at the end he asks his students does Mary get in the car so that's my question for you do you think Mary gets in the car I, I, I guess I would answer this way I hope not <laughs> I hope not and the reason I say this is because uh, maybe this sounds pretty shallow, but you know, I think I think we all deserve if we're if we're truly trying to be who we are and the best possible version of it and we're really I want her to get in a car with somebody who is actually gonna look her in the eye and say, I think you're a beauty you know? Yeah. And so, you know, I also feel that Born to Run isn't really about there's so few victories. And so I don't I don't know that I don't know. I, it, how would I say it? I think Thunder Road is really God, I don't know, it's so beautiful. It is it is it may be one of the most beautiful I don't know if there's a pop song or a rock and roll song with more beautiful lyrics. I mean, it is exquisite. It's impeccable. Sure. But, you know, we're pulling out here to win, but I don't know if he's really pulling out. You know, I don't know if he really goes anywhere. Does he get in, does she get in the car? No. And I think that, that it's, a, it's a little bit unfair, you know, to say, like, a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays. I didn't say you ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no, I think she should smile, and I think she should say, you're probably not it for me, but, boy, that was quite a performance. <laughs> no? Very nice. So, I like that answer. Yeah. That's a good answer. So, Very good. All right, yeah. if someone wants to uh, read more of your work, how do they find you? Um, they can email me directly. I don't mind. I'm, I'm not so popular that I, that I will turn away personal emails from people that want to read my stuff. In fact, I welcome them. Porter, P-O-R-T-E-R, 1306 at yahoo.com. And they should also visit stereoembersmagazine.com. And I would like to say also that we are always looking for people that want to contribute to the site, either writing or photography. And uh, they should definitely get in touch with us. All right. um, we're we're music fanatics and we're looking for the same. Very nice. Now give me that email address one more time. Porter P O R T E R one three zero six at yahoo.com. Okay. Good deal. All right. All right. And also if you if you tell me you're uh, emailing me from Nigeria with an offer on a mining uh, deal, uh, uh. I'm probably gonna bite. That's just the kind of guy I am. I have a hard uh, uh. time saying no. 
So yeah. See, I was going to say they should tell you that uh, they heard you on Set Lessing Bruce so we can get a shout-out. Um, Do that even more. That, yeah. That's even better. All right. You know? Or you could say, I heard you on Set Lessing Bruce, and by the way, I have $50,000 hidden in a safe in Iraq, <laughs> and I want to deposit it in your account, <laughs> and I need the information. Absolutely. You know, so. All right, hang on a little yeah. bit. Um, if you want to be on the podcast and share your Springsteen stories, uh, we would love to have you. You can reach out to me at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at setlustingbruce, and my personal Twitter is at jessejacksondfw. Um, we have a Facebook page. We'd love for you to go and like the page. And if you have the chance, please go to iTunes to rate and review the podcast. It is how new listeners find us. Um, did Leo go away? Thankfully, he's asleep. All right. <laughs> That's it. All right. He never stops. He never well, stops. I, you know, enjoy it. Um, enjoy I it. Do. I do. I you very much. Yeah. You know? Um, well, you can tell him that Jesse said, 500 miles I've gone today. Tomorrow it's 500 more. Outside my window, the world passes by. It's stranger than a dream. Just like the firewood, I burn up. Just like the firewood, just like the firewood, I burn up. Thank you, listeners. Oh, Thank you, David. We'll talk to you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.